Turn to uh, the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. Uh, Colossians is one of those astounding bits of writing by the venerated apostle. There is, there is so much meat in the Colossian letter. It's really sort of funny. I, I remember as a kid, I noticed the similarities between Colossians and Ephesians. He talks about a lot of the same stuff and a lot of the same language. They were probably written um, about the same time uh, from, from the apostle during his ministry. <clears throat> but while Ephesians, Ephesians is, I think, is more developed. It's longer, <clears throat> and it's, it, it's more easy to outline the book of Ephesians. And, uh, you know, Paul's usual approach to writing a, a letter was to start with the, the theology stuff, the, the, the broad brush. This is what happened. This is how it happened. This is what's going on. And then there will be a pivotal verse, and it always starts with a little three-letter word in Greek. It's a long, longer word in English. The word therefore. Therefore. He says, da-da-da-da-da-da, this and that and this and this and this and that. And look at, all, look at all this stuff. Therefore. And after the therefore, you'll figure out what the therefore is therefore. And it's to bring your attention to the practical application of all the stuff that he's been outlining in the, in the more theoretical. I don't like the word theoretical because that seems to remove it from reality, but the more the principles, the broad principles and the truth, the grand truth upon which uh, we stand and live and walk out that truth. But Colossians is a, is a little messier. Colossians, he, he kind of goes back and forth between that, and that word therefore pops up uh, paragraph after paragraph after paragraph as he builds, and, and he says, well, and now, because of that, do this, or because of that, think this, or, all right, so, so it's a little harder to follow, and, and there is a chapter, however, that I think is rather pivotal in Colossians, and it is this chapter, chapter 3, and every now and then, a passage of Scripture will get a hold of me and will not let me go. I told several people this past week that, that these first couple of verses, the first uh, three or four verses of Colossians had a hook in me. I, I, was, I was like obsessed with it. I, I found myself, I found myself on the drive to work. I have a pretty good drive to work every day because I'm either going to Amory or Columbus. So I'm either going to drive an hour or, or 35 minutes to get to my offices, and, uh, and, and that's a, a marvelous time to sit quietly with the Lord. But I found myself saying the key phrase from Colossians 3 out loud over and over again and, and, and trying to basically incorporate that as, as a prayer for me for the day. Um, <clears throat> because as, as I work, with 14 medical providers and about 100 employees, 
scattered around the area in three offices. There's a lot of stuff that grabs my attention every day. And, and sometimes I feel like, like, uh, like I'm, uh, uh, in, I feel like I'm like the, you know, an ADD kid in a, in a uh, squirrel zoo. Because <laughs> I, I, I'm, wait, wait what? What, what? Over here, what? And I have people around me that I say, now, now listen, you got to remind me of this. Not only remind me, but like send me two messages. And if they don't, who knows what's going to happen on that particular issue. And the, but I found myself focused on this passage scripture, and, and it, first, it first cropped up Tuesday morning when I was sitting around the table at the Starkville uh, Cafe with, with, uh, with my man friends who were there. And, and we were talking about a number of different issues. I mean, we talked about everything from... Uh, you know, how a Christian should dress to, I don't even remember all the topics. And, and uh, Mark was sitting right to my right, and I leaned over and I said, it all comes back to Colossians 3. Every single question comes back to Colossians 3. And here's the paragraph that has me in its grip right now. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version because I like how literal it is compared to the original language. <clears throat> therefore, got to go back and read chapters 1 and 2 to find out what this therefore is therefore. If you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Set your mind on things above. That's the phrase. That's the memory verse for this morning. Set your mind on things above. I'm going to unpack some of this this morning, and, and I want to apologize because my, my, my sermon is not really finished. So uh, I'm inviting you into my study, and uh, we're all going to sit around here and take a look at this passage of Scripture and some of the verses that come after. We'll get as much of the chapter as we possibly can uh, before people start walking out or throwing things. <clears throat> he says, if you have been raised up with Christ. Now that word if in, in, in the language can also be translated since. Since you've been raised up with Christ. Because he has spent a considerable amount of time already convincing the audience that they are raised up with Christ. Um, and, and, and that word, you know, the technical definition of that word is raised up with, okay? Nothing fancy about it, but it's not used very often in the New Testament. In fact, Paul uses it just about three times, and two of them are in Colossians, and one of them is in, is in Ephesians, and every one of them emphasizes us 
sharing in the resurrection. Sharing in the resurrection and the glorification because we're not just raised up from death. We are raised up with Him into the heavenly places where He is seated at the right hand of God. You want to know your position in the kingdom? There it is. I don't care if you are the most famous televangelist who ever walked the planet or an obscure church janitor from a little country church in rural Mississippi, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He didn't say you're going to be. He says you are. You've been raised up. You've been resurrected. It's interesting that, the, that, the, that, the, that most of the language, I didn't do a thorough study, but most of the language in the New Testament talks about the resurrection of Jesus with a passive verb. You know the difference between active and passive? Well, you all know I'm a professional grammar Nazi, so I'm about to tell you. In an active verb, the subject is doing something. Okay? In a passive verb, something's happening to the subject. Jesus has been raised. He was, he was raised from the dead. It wasn't simply that Jesus just said, I'm tired of this, I'm going to stand up. He was raised by the power of heaven, by the God, the creator of the universe, the giver of life. He was raised with a power that not only brought him to the surface of the earth, but catapulted him to the right hand of God in the heavenly places. And you know what Paul says about that in Ephesians? He says, my prayer for you is this, that the eyes of your heart will be opened and that you will see the marvelous manifestation of the power of God that is already in you. That power is the same power that raised Jesus. That's what's at work in you. If you don't have that power working in you, then you've pulled a plug or something. There's, there's something not connected or a switch that's not on or a selector to the right frequency is malfunctioning. That's why Paul had to pray that your, your heart eyes will be open. Because you're not going to see it with these eyes. You're going to see it with these eyes. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you high and lifted up, shining. That's what I want to see. But it's heart eyes. And it's not something we do. It's something we surrender to. He didn't say, my prayer is that you open your eyes. He says, my prayer is that your eyes will be open. Again, it's passive. What does that mean? I don't have a perfect answer for that. Because I'm a long ways from understanding the, the power balance in the changed life. I'm far from understanding where God's sovereignty and my free will meet up and make something happen that's so huge that, that Jesus, Jesus compared it to 
a camel passing through the eye of a needle. You remember that one? The rich, the, the rich young ruler. And, and he says, what do I have to do to enter into the kingdom? He says, keep the commandments. I'll, I'll do that pretty good. He says, well, then you just lack one thing. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, come with me. And he went away sorrowfully because he had so much stuff. And then Jesus, Jesus said, I'll tell you what. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And the disciples said, well, then who can enter? They got it. They knew he wasn't just talking about rich folks. What did, what did Jesus respond? That's right. With man, some things are impossible, but with God, all things are possible. I saw, I saw one of those, uh, I hate using the word meme because it's been co-opted by the internet, but we'll use it anyway. I saw one of those memes on Facebook, and it says, I can do all things through a verse I've ripped out of context. <laughs> With God... It's possible to save even you. Now, Lord, open my eyes. Lord, help me see. Be evident. Lord, be loud. My grandson, when he was about three years old, we were talking about God. And he said, he said to Julie one day, he said, he said, you know what I want? I said, what? I would really like to hear God say something really loud. Only a three-year-old would say that. Because most of the time in Scripture, when God says something really loud, people fall down in terror. But, but he did say that. Children have a unique point of view. So much has, has not yet been tainted, miscolored, distorted by how the enemy has us interpreting events. This past week, my, my uh, little granddaughter, my next to the youngest, no, third to the youngest grand. I can't, I can't keep track. I don't have as many as most of you, but I can't keep track. She's three, and I'm almost a half. And she walks up to her mom and says, I think, I think heaven is inside my body. Because God is in heaven, and he lives in my heart, so heaven must be inside my heart, too. Why don't I think that way? 
why can't I draw a straight line between this dot and that dot? Everybody, everybody stick your thumb up. Come on, it's group participation. Now, now move your thumb so that it blocks your view of me. And move it up until you can't see me. All right? Now, I'm not a little guy, but did you know your thumb was that big? You got a huge thumb. It, it grew from this big to this big in moments. No, it didn't. But you could block out your view of me with your thumb. It's all a matter of perspective. Set your mind on things above. There's an interesting word. That word that talks about thinking of things, setting your mind. It, it, it uses a verb that focuses not on your head, but on your solar plexus. And it's a really, it, it, it doesn't have a, a real good English word for it because it combines both the cognitive and the affective. The, 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 the know and know-how with the, with the feeling and the passion. And, and it's not just about acknowledging that there is a heaven and a God who sits therein. Yeah, there's a very large organization that, that acknowledges that. They're called demons. You can know that and not have a single change in your life. You can, you can believe that as a fact and have no effect on you. Except maybe if you're smart as a demon, you'll tremble in fear. A lot of people don't even do that. They're stupider than the devil. Get your focus. Get the center of your being. Get your, your, your purpose set on things above where Christ dwells. Uh, things of earth are growing strangely dim already. It was the greatest moment of my life. It was my greatest achievement. I have been wanting to own this for so long, and now I do. You got your thumb in your eye. This is the worst tragedy that I could have experienced. I can't go on without him or without her. I can't, I can't make it because... I didn't get that job. My car broke down. <laughs> got your thumb in your eye. Because there's so much, it's so much bigger. So much bigger. How much of our life do we spend at the border of the promised land contemplating the gigantic inhabitants that make us look like grasshoppers. What is it that makes us hesitate to step into the kingdom? I mean, step into the kingdom. I don't mean I stand by at God's 
gathering on Sundays for a little bit and make me feel better. Open the eyes of my heart. Help me set my mind on things above. Set your mind on... What does it mean? Set your mind on things above. We're raised with Him. Which means that we've died to the things of this world. Now that we're just kind of taking a break, we're not just having a snooze here. We've died to this world. Think how radical that is. We've been kicking that term around for a couple of millennia. And, and, and the whole idea of dying to self, bearing our cross in the context of which it was originally delivered Was, was shocking. It was radical. People said strange things about the church because of those kinds of terminologies. It's, it, it is, a, it is an, a break from this world. If whatever has got you soaring or crashing... isn't eternal, you got your thumb in your eye. Now, you've got, you've got to step back and take a great big honesty pill to look at yourself and ask the hard questions about where, which thumb you've got blocking your view of Jesus. I, I, can't, I can't tell you what's blocking your view. We might have a conversation and I might get suspicious by what you say or what you react to, but only you know, revealed by the very one that I pray will open your heart eyes and see that he's bigger, the kingdom is bigger, eternity is bigger, his purposes are bigger than whatever it is. He, he goes on in this, in this passage of Scripture to, and, and to illustrate it and help us understand when he says, Verse 5, he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them, but now you also Put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech from your mouth. Don't lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you've put on the new self, 
who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek, Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free man, but Christ is all and in all. That last phrase could also say, but all is Christ and he is in all. Do you recognize the radical nature of what he's saying here? You know, a, a, a radical procedure means we did it completely. You see, he reveals here the, the conflict that we live in. You've heard me talk about this many times, and that is the tension of living in the now and the not yet. We are seated with him in the heavenly places, but some days it, it, it don't feel like it. We have eternal life. John says that over and over again in 1 John. He says, I'm writing these things so you'll know that you have eternal life. Well, thanks, John. But some days it doesn't feel too, feel too much like that. He also, he also recorded for us Jesus' definition of eternal life, by the way. Did you know Jesus gave us a definition? The Tuesday night group knows this. When he was praying the night before, he was crucified, he says, and this is eternal life. I'm all ears. It's like E.F. Hutton. And this is eternal life, to know you, the Father, and to know the one you have sent. That's eternal life. Oh. There's no mention of mansions and gold streets and harps and clouds that you can lay on like hammocks. There, there's no mention of eternal retirement. There's no mention of in the sweet by and by. It's knowing God. But somehow, we don't see all of Him. And we don't really know Him completely. Because my flesh thumb is in front of my eye. That's why, that's why he can say, you died to all these things, so quit it. <laughs> you, notice, you notice the irony there? He says, look, you've died. You've died to all of this fleshy stuff. But then he says, so don't do it. Well, if I've died to it, then I shouldn't be doing it. And if I'm doing it, then I must not be dead to it. And I, no, you're living between two worlds. You are no longer of this world, but you are not yet there, wherever there is. My granddaughter knows the chief characteristic of heaven. It's where God is. So what's the chief characteristic of hell? It's where God isn't. I have, a, I have a dear friend 
I won't say his name, JPB is his initials, and he'll, he'll talk about things, things being hell. He'll say, oh, is it, 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 that we call that our hell years, or this was, it was, right? Right. right? And what do I always tell you? <laughs> when, when you say it to me, I usually say, yeah, Jesus wasn't there, huh? Because that's what hell is, is when Jesus isn't there. Now, it is a taste of hell. You know why? Because we can't see Jesus. I know because that's what I do. I'm not picking on Johnny. Because <laughs> that's what I do. Whatever it is. Stop it. And you know what happens then? What happens then is immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, especially greed. We don't even know what greed is in this country. Because we're immersed in it. We're saturated with it. It, it's, it's, it's the fuel of the, of the engine of our economy. I remember a long time ago, um, there was a comic strip called Frank and Ernest, and they usually do, used to do biblical themes. And he had, he had one of them dressed as Moses, and he's got tablets in his hands, and he looks up and he says, Thou shalt not covet. What's going to happen to our economy? <laughs> That's what happens when I get my thumb in my eye. Then I'm, I'm ready for anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying, or as I call it, commuting. That's kind of funny. Because I, I, can, I can abuse me some fellow drivers now. They can't hear me. Thank goodness, because half of them probably carry guns. So he says, instead, put this on. And he uses a word that means dress up in. Verse 12. As those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone. Just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love which is the perfect bond of unity, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Does this list remind you of another list somewhere else in Paul's writings? Anyone? 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 Yes? That's my boy. Fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. In fact... One, two, three, four, five of the seven words that appear as fruit of the Spirit in Galatians is in this list. The only, the only, um, the only two words missing are self-control and joy. And then there's a few that are thrown in here too. The fruit of the Spirit is characterized by love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, 
self-control. There's no law against that. Paul talks about, in Galatians, he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, but he talks about the works or the deeds of the flesh. It's so subtle that we just kind of got flipped back and forth between those two things. But what's the difference between fruit and deeds? What, what could possibly be the difference? Very good. The deeds are something we, we pursue, we do. You do a deed, you work a work, these are works of the flesh. But, you know, I've never, ever seen a fruit tree out in a field going, got to produce some fruit. How does, it, how does fruit happen? How does fruit happen on a branch? Anybody? It is the nature of things, but... but it's connected. If you cut that branch off, it's laying on the ground. It's not going to produce too much fruit. It's about abiding in the tree. Oh, that sounds familiar. Jesus talked about that in John 15. Again, the night before he was crucified. He says, Biden me. You won't bear fruit. You stick with me. You can't make fruit happen. You stay connected, and fruit happens. It's from the Spirit. That love and that joy and the peace, goodness and kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control. Uh, let's skip that one. You know, and we, we, we talk about surrendering control to the Spirit. That's not exactly a scriptural term. We do surrender to the Spirit and His leading and all of that, but, but, but there's more talk about self-control. When Paul was talking to Felix, that was not the cat, that was the ruler, the governor, and, and, and he started talking about judgment and self-control, that was about the time Felix punched out and said, I think we had enough of this. <laughs> I mean... He's a governor. He can do anything he wants to. I don't want to talk about self-control. And he's a governor. He don't want to talk about being judged. He has a thumb in his eye. He wraps it up in verse 16. And this, this verse has come alive for me in recent years as I have been grafted into this branch of the vine at New Horizons. He says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. And that's a plural you. So we know that it should have been translated within y'all. All y'all. with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. 
Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. I think we got, the, I think we got that joy fruit somewhere in this paragraph. It's the word of Christ, the essence of, of who he is, the message of what he's done, the message of the promise. Let it dwell richly. That's interesting. Richly dwell within you. I think that the difference is, is the difference between painting a coating and using a penetrating stain. Let it dwell richly among you. And it does here. The Word of God is so alive in this fellowship. Whether we're, whether we're eating some eggs on Tuesday morning or, or sitting, around a, sitting around a circle with the elders on a, on a Wednesday, meeting here, singing together, joining in with the, with the young people on a Wednesday or, or prayer bird. The Word, the Word, the Word, it's everywhere. And we see it rising up in independent individuals with, with God bringing that same message from multiple points. For crying out loud, you might be studying Colossians 3 and then hear about your granddaughter saying it out loud in a three-year-old way. The Word of Christ dwells among us richly. But it doesn't just, just sit there and idle. It's not treading water among us. It motivates us. To, to, to have wisdom and to teach, to admonish. Admonish is an interesting word. We kind of think of it as a corrective. I'm going to admonish you. There's more to it than that. The word literally means to put something in the mind. Plant something in your mind. That's admonishing. We, we want to be motivational. I want to motivate you. And it's like, so God does one of those Gibbs things to me and says, you can't motivate him, that's my job. It's the Holy Spirit that comforts and convicts with the truth. All I can do is say the truth, listen to how he wants it said, and to which, which part of the whole message is for today. And singing. We do it all in the name of Jesus. So, take your thumb out of your eye and say, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. When, when your job is, is, is not happening, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. When, when, when your husband is doing his best impersonation of the south end of a northbound horse, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Takes a minute for that one to sink in, I know. When you don't know how you're going to pay the bills, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. When everyone is telling you how wonderful you are at your job, open the eyes of my heart, Lord.
when that guy or that girl finally looks your direction and your blood pressure and heart rate and respiration go off the chart. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. When you get that, when you get that new guitar. <laughs> Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. When it seems that all is lost. When it seems you can't take another step. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. When you're holding the hand of the love of your life and counting her last 100 breaths, open the eyes of my heart, Lord. I want to see you. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. Seated with the Father. Now, that's all I got. Took a long time to talk about a sermon. It wasn't even finished. <laughs> How long would it have been if I got done? Open the eyes of my heart. Let's stand up and sing that song together. You can sing that one without the slides, can't you? It's not too many words. It's an old one now. It's, whoa, it's like 20 years old. And it's an ancient hymn. And if you need to change your position, come to the front. If you want someone to pray with you, help you pull your thumb out of your eye, help you even see that you're looking at your thumb, now's a good time. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart, I want to see you, I want to see you. That part again. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, open the eyes of my heart.